Rock LaJoya. And uh, Rock and his wife, Kathy, are members of Wawasee Bible. And uh, Rock is a professor at Grace Theological Seminary, oversee the D-Men program. And uh, it's good to have you. Thanks again for all your help and your support and encouragement. And Thank you for the privilege and the blessing to yeah. share God's word. Appreciate it. Yeah. And welcome back. Thank you. And Happy New Year to you, by the way. Thank you. Let's welcome Rock. Yeah. Thank you. I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I really do appreciate that last song. Wow, that fits right in with what we have in the text here. As we uh, look forward to a new year, um, we need God's grace in a big way. Not day by day, not hour by hour, not minute by minute, but second by second, really. Uh, As we go through the text, we're going to see that really the Christian life is all about the grace of God working in and through us. And what a privilege we have to speak to such an awesome God in prayer. And so I invite you to pray with me, shall we? Lord, we thank you for keeping us through another year. And uh, most of us have faced some challenges and trials. And there was also some joys and mountaintop experiences and then everything in between. And in the midst of all of that, you were there, caring intently. Lord, you care more than we do often about uh, the details of our lives, and we're grateful for that. And we would be remiss if we didn't pause here at the beginning of a year and just say, thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your patience with us, for your mercy extended to us, and for the way you lavish your grace upon us. And so we pray now, Lord, as you speak through your word, I pray you'll guide my thoughts and my words, but... Beyond that, I pray for each of us that you would give us a teachable spirit and that you would work life transformation in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we want to be more like you, and we realize that means some stretching and growing pains, but we would dare to pray, bring it on, Lord, because we need it. And so we choose now to worship you with our minds, our hearts, our wills, our emotions, and we pray that you would receive all the glory and magnification that is due you. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus and Lord, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A poor woman who knew what it was to go without life's bare necessities, including food, often her experience was to look at an empty cupboard. She knew what it was to go without. Well, some of her friends took her on an outing to the seaside. And she was overwhelmed by the scene as she looked out. Have you ever been to the seaside? Uh, It just goes and goes beyond what the eye can see. It's just a vast expanse. And she looked out, and she was encouraged by that sight. And she said, thank God for something that there is enough of. She's looking at that sea and realizes it goes and goes and goes. Overwhelmed. The impoverished soul, when it first experiences... The limitless grace of God has a similar experience. There's a sense of being overwhelmed, a sense of awe, a sense of gratitude. Has something like that been your experience, perhaps when you first met Christ and first experienced his forgiving grace? You see, there's a lot of ways we can approach this particular subject the subject of the infinite grace of God. And often we can, for lack of a better word, 
live as though we have temporary amnesia and forget what grace is all about and by default go into sort of a, for lack of a better word, a self-effort or works mode. That's really the opposite of what grace is all about. Uh, Often Christians find themselves living out the Christian life in their own strength, maybe even struggling with bouts of pride, sometimes dragging their feet, so to speak, uh, in a state of spiritual lethargy or weakness. And the grace of God addresses all those things. What it's going to come down to for us is to uh, believe in the fact that God's grace is sufficient for all of the needs of life. In fact, as we walk through this text, it's going to become very evident that what Paul is teaching us here is that God's grace is sufficient for our every need. And when I say every, what I mean by that is every. In other words, every need, in all circumstances, at all times, no matter where we're at, whether on this continent or another continent, or even if we were to go to the moon, God's grace will always be sufficient. Do you believe it? So what are the needs it is sufficient for? Well, that list goes on and on. If you were to scope out the whole Bible here, we could make a long, long list of some of the needs uh, of which God's grace is sufficient. But Paul's going to limit it to two, and you'll be thankful for that because that means it's going to be a shorter sermon than otherwise would be the case. In the spirit of grace and mercy, it won't be that long of a sermon. But I want to look with you at this text, and you're going to see as we go through the earlier part of the text that one of the needs that God's grace meets is this, and that is God's grace provides Christ-like humility. God's grace provides Christ-like humility. Anybody in the need of humility? I guess it's only me. Pray for me, please. I need it more than minute by minute. I need his humility. And that is a human need. You know, there's a tendency to pride, and especially, as I mentioned, we get into that default mode of doing stuff for God as opposed to him working the Christian life through us by his grace. We can become proud and say, look at my list. Look at all the cool things I did for God. Implication. God really needs me, doesn't he? That's not it. And so let's talk about this subject of God's grace. And I hope it's a subject that you will never get over for the rest of your life. That it will constantly refresh you and challenge you and inspire you and cause uh, gratitude to well up in your heart. God's grace is sufficient for our every need. And one of the particular needs is God's grace provides Christ-like humility. Now, before we dig in, let me just talk a little bit about grace. What does that mean? Uh, You hear a lot of definitions such as uh, uh, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, or the classic is unmerited favor. Uh, We use it in a lot of contexts such as thank you for gracing us with your presence. Or would you please say grace before you have a meal? Or you might say, well, you know what? Pray for me because I'm late in paying my bill for my insurance. But you know what? I looked the other day at the fine print, and in the fine print it says there's a grace period, and I'm okay for a few more days. I'm going to get that check in the mail. So what does grace mean? Well, I, I tried to find the most basic definition I can come up with, and this one comes from Wearsby. I like it because it's short and sweet. 
He says, grace, if you want to write it down, grace is God's provision for our every need when we need it. Grace is God's provision for our every need when we need it. So if you think about provision, it's a great thing, but if it's not available at the moment you need it, it's not going to do you any good. He's saying it's available all the time, and it is. Thank God for that. Now let's look at our text and notice um, in uh, chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, picking up at verse 1. Notice what he says, boasting is necessary. So let's start boasting, everybody, okay? No, no, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. We always have to look at the context, right? But there's a classic example of people build this big doctrinal edifice sometimes on one little phrase, and they don't look at what came before or what came after. This is basic Bible study 101. Let's get the context here. Notice he says, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So what's happening here? Well, at some point, while the Apostle Paul was away from Corinth, false apostles had infiltrated the church at Corinth, and there was a particular group in the midst of the church, I'm going to call it the rabble-rousing group. This was the group that were the malcontents, the complainers. They didn't really like Paul. They didn't want to follow his leadership. In fact, they bad-mouthed him. And so here comes these super apostles, these false apostles with their resumes. They'd open up the scroll and say, look at all the cool stuff I've done. And guess which group out of all of them in that church gravitated toward these false apostles? Well, it was that little rabble-rousing group. And so they welcomed them with open arms, and they were causing a lot of division in the church. These super apostles boasted about their Jewish heritage. They boasted about all of their, quote, wonderful achievements. They boasted about their eloquence and public discourse. And they boasted about their alleged visions and revelations. And that's why Paul's going to address this in a moment. That's bad enough, isn't it? But beyond all the boasting and all the divisiveness there, uh, these false apostles also slandered Paul's ministry. They defamed his character, said things that were just not true. And Paul's now in the highly uncomfortable position of having to defend his ministry and also his own character. Now, let me add right away, and this is key, for the sake of the gospel. I want you to know there's no ego here whatsoever with Paul. In fact, he's going to be the example we're going to see of Christ-like humility. He's doing this because he has to, and that's why he says boasting is necessary. He was in this uncomfortable situation of having to defend his gospel because these super apostles came in with a false gospel, the kind that if you embrace it, it damns you. And so what's at stake is the souls of even some in the Corinthian church, who we don't know where they're at spiritually, and the broader public, including today, we have this letter, right? And uh, Paul does lay out the gospel clearly here. But uh, the point is, Paul is thinking of others, not himself. Keep that in mind. You'll see it clearly. You can just see how uncomfortable he is. In fact, go to chapter 11 with me and look at verse 4. Speaking of some of the context here. He says, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached... Or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, i.e. from us. Or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, a gospel, the one that Paul articulated. 
you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Literally, that could be translated the super apostles. That's where we get that phrase from. Look at verse 13, chapter 11. For such men, i.e. these false apostles, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Now you can turn back to chapter 12. Notice he said in verse 4, a different gospel. And that's really the issue here. The gospel is at stake. And so Paul is doing this for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Keep that in mind. Now, a little bit later in chapter 11, we won't look at all this, but in 22 through 33, Paul does talk about his Jewish heritage because they brought it up, right? He talks about his accomplishments. He talks about his hardships, his weakness. These are the things you wouldn't put on your resume necessarily, but Paul thinks they're important. Paul has a very broad view of what grace entails. And one of my prayers this morning is that all of us would leave with a broader view of what grace entails. It's very broad. And so in our text now, 12, 1 through 10, Paul talks about visions and revelations, and then also his weakness. And notice he says there, verse 1, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. Boasting is not profitable. In fact, it can be destructive because it deflects the glory that is due God and arrogates it to us. And instead of recruiting people for God, we recruit people for self. So Paul is not pro-boasting. Now, he's doing it here for a reason, but he's not for it. He's against it. And so notice what happens here. Uh, Since some of these Corinthians began to follow the false apostles, Paul is compelled to respond with boasting. And if you'll see it, uh, it's in chapter 12, verse 11. He says here, really commenting on, quote, all the boasting here. He says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Remember he said it's necessary, verse 1. And here he's saying, you're compelling me to do this. I'm really uncomfortable here. But for the sake of the gospel, I have to give an answer. Actually, I should have been commended by you. Meaning, I shouldn't have to commend myself. You Corinthians, who I led to Christ. He was there a year and a half. He planted a church and he led them to Christ. You should be commending me. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. So we do see his humility here. But he says, I have to do this. So back to verse 1. But I will go on. Now apparently, Paul was working his way through a list of boasts. In other words, the super apostles, they said, well, we did this, and we did that, and we did this. And so Paul is answering them, okay? He has to. And so that's why I think he has sort of an order here to the things he's bringing up. Now, these Corinthians, who had a proclivity to the spectacular, you can just imagine their eyes becoming wide like saucers as they're hearing these false apostles, and they're saying, wow, you saw what? Cool. What did you hear? An angel spoke to you? Wow, you guys are cool. We want to follow you. Forget Paul. And see, these false apostles are trying to win the allegiance to themselves. They want to wean it off of Paul and unto themselves, right? Which is dangerous. Because with that comes the embracing of a false gospel. So Paul says, look at verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up in the third heaven. 
Now, instead of referring to himself as a great apostle, in humility, Paul refers to himself as a man in Christ. He's, he's kind of sidling up to this. He's very uncomfortable here. And really, instead of referring to himself as this great man, he tells the story in third person. Because he's really too humble to do what he knows he has to do. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He's the one who founded the church. He was with them for a year and a half. So a year and a half? Help me with math. I'm not good at it. That would be, what, 18 months? Did I get that right? Thanks. I feel better. So 18 months, he's with them, rubbing elbows with the Corinthians. And never once did he bring up this vision he's about to describe. And there's a reason why, primarily because he's humble. But there's another reason. We'll see it here in a moment. So he says, I know a man in Christ. He's really referring to himself. We see God's grace here providing Christ-like humility in this man's life. And that can be the case and should be the case for us as well. Now look at verse 3. He says, And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Notice the word, verse 4, caught up. It's repeated twice, harpazo, that same word we have in First uh, S 4 for the rapture. This suggests that Paul is describing a single experience. There's only one experience he's describing. It says he was caught up, verse 4, into paradise. Then verse 2, caught up into the third heaven. They're really one and the same. Jesus said in Luke 23, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise, right? So, uh, what do we have? We have heaven, which is the place where the birds fly. We have a heaven above that, which is where the planets are, you know, the stars, etc. Then we have the third heaven, which is God's dwelling place. And Paul was either caught up or raptured there physically, or he was put in some ecstatic spiritual state. He doesn't know, so how would I know? But nevertheless, he saw the place and experienced the place where God dwells. Now, that's really something to brag about. I mean, I could write books and do conferences and give you 10 steps on how you can have your ecstatic experience. And, you know, he didn't do that. He didn't even bring it up. He didn't want to bring it up. He's too humble. But he says in verse 4, And this man, i.e. Paul, heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. What he heard was too holy to utter, and he really wasn't supposed to give any details about it, and he doesn't really. We don't have all the details of what exactly he heard or saw. But I find it fascinating that of all the experiences that the Apostle Paul had in his life, all the experiences he could have chosen to boast about, he chooses the one experience of which he is not permitted to speak. That's how humble the man is. He says in verse 5, on behalf of such a man will I boast, not on my own behalf. I will not boast on my own behalf, except in regard to my weaknesses. Do you sense his discomfort here? In genuine humility, Paul limited his boasting to only those actions that magnified God's grace, hear it, through his weakness. You mean our weakness can magnify God's grace? Yeah, that's when we really see the contrast. That's a good thing. It's not always comfortable for us. But it's a great place to be when we enlist our sufferings and enlist our weaknesses for God's greater glory. It's a great place to be. 
And so here we see that God's grace provides Christ-like humility. We see it, exhibit A, in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, if you notice in verse 6, he says, For if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. In an attempt to receive more credit than they deserve, these super apostles proudly boasted beyond what was proper. But Paul, in all humility, does not want people to think that he's larger than life. He doesn't want their eyes on him. There's a sense in which, if he could, he would become invisible. Because he wants all the glory to be on his Savior, on his Creator. And so, again, he's in a very precarious position here. He's very uncomfortable with this. But he will do it for the sake of the gospel. But I want you to see that God's grace provides Christ-like humility in this man's life and in our lives and the lives of all believers. Notice verse 7, he says, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, he mentions that twice. Uh, Notice here, it says there was, adatha is the Greek word, given me. It's put in the passive. In other words, it's something that God gives. This thing that God gave is really God's favor upon Paul. And you've got to know it's not a comfortable thing at all. In fact, that same word occurs for your notes if you want it. Ephesians 3.8, you'll see that same word there. Uh, Adatha in the Greek, it's the word given. It reads like this, Ephesians 3.8. To me, the very least of all the saints, you see the humility there? This grace was given, there's that same word, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so the point here, dear friends, is that Paul's thorn in the flesh is really a grace gift from our gracious Lord. Now, that happens in our lives as well. And I'm telling you, and from personal experience, it doesn't always feel that way. In fact, contrary, we think, God, what are you doing to me here? I've been trying to serve you. This hurts. What did I do to deserve this? That's often our response. But in his case, his vision of what God's grace encompasses is a lot broader than ours is. And again, my prayer is for me and for you that our vision of what the circumference of God's grace entails would be a lot larger and not just narrow, i.e. all the things we would call the good stuff. Because some of the things we interpret as bad stuff really is, in God's eyes and God's mind, the good stuff. And he's treating us to the good stuff. You say, well, God, don't treat me as much then if that's the case. Well, it's for our own good. And I want you to see there's two dynamics happening uh, in this particular situation here. He talks about a thorn in the flesh. See it there, verse 7? What was Paul's thorn? Well, here's the short answer, and my students don't like it when I say this, but i got to be honest. They ask me these profound theological questions in the theology classes. And you know what? God's Word does not say. If we want to speculate, we'll step over here and we'll just make sure we know that we're speculating. We can do that. But the fact is, God's Word doesn't say. He has some thorn. The best I could tell you about this, it's translated steak, and I don't mean the one with E-A-K, the one you eat at a restaurant. 
Paul's not enjoying a T-bone steak. Steak, S-T-A-K-E. This is some sharp object that causes severe pain. That's at least the metaphor being used here. Deep physical pain. Now, there's all kinds of speculation. You check out church history. Some would say Paul had some chronic eye disease, uh, fever, severe headaches, epilepsy, and there's a whole list there. But honestly, we don't know. Sorry. Paul doesn't tell us. But he calls it, notice verse 7, a messenger of Satan. Wait a minute. Can Satan actually cause physical pain? Well, a couple verses for you. Job 2, 7. Then the Satan, Satan, went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. That's physical. Luke chapter 13. And behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. Now, is that a good spirit or an evil spirit? Well, let's look at the context. And Jesus laid his hands upon her. And the Lord said, This woman whom Satan has bound, so it's an evil spirit, right? For 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Paul's thorn in the flesh was inflicted by Satan's malice, but was allowed by God's grace. You say, that sounds like a paradox. Well, it is. There's cross purposes here, right? God and the devil always have two different agendas. In his infinite wisdom, God used the proudest being in the universe, the one who looked Jesus in the eye in the desert. Check it out, Matthew 4, Luke 4. And he said, bow down and worship me. That's the proudest person in the universe, the devil. And God uses this proud devil to bring great humility in the life of the Apostle Paul. So God is about bringing humility, and the devil's over here trying to promote pride. And that's what it's one of his major tools, right? Tries to get us to be proud, makes us think we're so good. Because when we're so great in our own eyes, we don't need God. We don't need his grace. We're not going to be dependent on him because God's lucky he's got me. He should be thankful that I'm helping him out, right? That's pride. That's what the devil does. What God does, he tries to humble us and help us to see ourselves accurately. Because the more we get a glimpse of how awesome God is, we have better perspective on who we really are. We're just vessels of clay. If any good stuff comes shining out of us, that's the grace of God, isn't it? Shines through the cracks. That's reality, and God wants us to track with reality. In fact, I think maturity is tracking reality as it really is, as God has created, as God defines it for us. That's maturity. That's spiritual maturity. And so what we have here is cross-purposes. And why is God allowing this choice servant to suffer? He says it twice. See it? Verse 7. To keep me from exalting myself. To keep me from exalting myself. Is that a good thing? It sure is. Painful, right? This process. But the result is awesome. You see, pride can destroy a ministry. But by means of the thorn, God preserved Paul's ministry. Make no mistake, pain can be, and often is, a grace gift from our loving Lord. I like how one scholar puts it. He says, 
God wanted Paul to remain humble and fully aware of his own weakness. The thorn punctured any pride that might surge within him because of his grand entry into heaven. And the result was that he dealt with others with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You see, God's grace provides Christ-like humility. Have you ever heard of the Templeton Prize? It was news to me, too, so don't feel bad. Let me, let me read this to you. The Templeton Prize in Science and Religion honors a living person who has made an exceptional contribution to affirming life's spiritual dimension. The prize aims to identify outstanding individuals who have devoted their talents to expanding our vision of human purpose and ultimate reality. These remarkable laureates have been seekers of wisdom, humbled by the complexity of the human condition. Sir John Templeton, the founder of the Templeton Prize, said, What I am financing is humility. I want people to realize you shouldn't think you know it all. Have you ever been in a room where the smartest person in the room entered and let everybody know it? You know, from time to time, and this is not just at Grace. I've taught at Moody and Huntington and Taylor. Uh, this is, teachers will tell you this who've been teaching for a while. Every so often, we'll get a student who will ask questions, but he or she is asking those questions because he wants the rest of his peers to know all the stuff he knows. And he also wants them to know that he knows even more than the prof. That's pride. And that's not squaring with reality. As I get older, I find there's so much stuff. There was stuff I was ignorant of, I didn't even know what was out there. Somebody will mention a field I know nothing about, and I'm thinking, what is that? There's so many things we don't know. And humility will tell us such. Now, there's a danger. 1 Corinthians 8, for your notes, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, Paul says, Knowledge makes arrogant. But love edifies. Now, I'm not anti-education. You've got to know that. But there's a danger with knowledge. If anyone supposes that he has attained perfect knowledge of anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. And so he's addressing their intellectual pride. Perhaps it thrives more in academic settings, but I think it can thrive anywhere. Even a person who does not have much education can be very proud and think they're, quote, I know it all. So how do we avoid pride? Well, James tells us, James, if you want it, James 4.10. It's a command, by the way. Humble yourselves. Where? In the presence of the Lord. See, again, we get the glimpse of God and see where our proper place is. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. There's a promise attached to that. And he, he, it's the best place to be again, he will exalt you. A little later on in James... 4, six, he says, God is opposed to the proud. We don't want to be in a situation where God's opposing us, right? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so we need to acknowledge our sin and pray for God's grace to work humility in us. We cannot lather ourselves into a place of humility. I can't push a button and just be humble. God has to do that. But I need to want that, Right? Like the rest of us, even Paul was susceptible to prideful thoughts. And so we need to ask God to grant us a curb against our own pride and then also ask him to use our weaknesses, 
our infirmities for his glory. We need to be reminded, A, that we are weak, and B, that it actually can be something useful in God's hand, right? All of us are weak, every one of us. The Corinthians lived in a culture obsessed with making a good impression. They were all about putting on a good show because it was important that everybody saw them as being great or smart or whatever. And Paul didn't want the Corinthians to think too highly of him. We see that very clearly here. And so sometimes we need to ask ourselves for great insight and self-understanding. Why do I do the things I do? Some questions, diagnostic questions, if you want them, here they are. Why do I feel compelled to impress others? It's a good question to ask. What am I seeking from others that I should be seeking from God? I've been counseling situations through the years, even as a pastor, about 100 years ago. Every so often, it became obvious that the person I'm trying to help was in a state of bondage, for lack of a better word, to the opinions of others. In fact, what they were doing was granting other people, sometimes even strangers, permission to define their worth and their purpose. We cannot live for the crowd. The crowd is fickle, and that's horizontal anyway. We have to compare to Jesus and look up to him. And our esteem and value and dignity comes from him. Because, dear Christian, God's fingerprints are all over you. He created you. And the Spirit of God lives in you. And Christ shed his priceless blood, yes, for you and for me. There's got to be some worth in there somewhere. We're not talking about self-pride, but we're talking about dignity assigned by God. God thinks we are of worth. We're made in his image. And so these are some of the things to wrestle with. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, and 10, For I am the least of the apostles, notice the word here, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Are you beginning to see that God's grace is sufficient for our every need? We're only looking at two here. The first one is God's grace provides Christ-like humility. Here's a second need that Paul brings up, and that is God's grace provides spiritual strength. Now, I need some muscle men to get up here and do this because I didn't have my Wheaties for breakfast. I probably won't have my spinach for lunch. But if I had some muscles, I would show you, by way of illustration, that God provides spiritual strength. So what is spiritual strength? Because we need it, because I just said earlier, we're all weak, aren't we? So look at the text here, and notice what he says. It's really interesting. In verse 8, he says, concerning this, that stake that he had, this thorn in the flesh, concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So when Paul first received this thorn in the flesh, it didn't feel like a grace gift from God. In fact, it appeared to be a hindrance to his ministry. Often, for those who serve in ministry, a physical ailment can be a hindrance, at a minimum, a distraction. Because now it's got to be taken care of, and there's less time to serve, etc., etc. So I'm sure Paul was hurting during this process. It must have been painful. So he asked the Lord three times... Lord, please take this from me. 
Lord, please take this from me. Lord, please take this from me. Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus. He prayed three times that the cup might pass from him, right? And then finally he acquiesced. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. So Paul, I believe here, is praying directly to the one who is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus Christ. And after persevering in prayer, Jesus answers Paul. Check it out. It's right there in the next verse, verse 9. And he, Jesus, the Lord, has said to me, My grace, Paul, is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul adds his commentary on that answer to prayer. And notice the Lord didn't answer his prayer in the sense that he didn't take it away. He didn't do what Paul wanted. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. Why? Why, Paul? That the power of Christ may dwell in me. Wow. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul received what he needed, not what he wanted. Jesus did not remove the thorn. That's often the case in our lives, right? And we think God is not answering. Well, he's not answering that specific request, but he's probably doing something better. In fact, I can say 10 times out of 10, he's up to something better. We have a limited vision, right, of what we think we need. He has the bird's eye view on what we really need, and he loves us too much sometimes to give us what we're asking for because he's got something far better, although admittedly it doesn't look like it or feel like it. You know, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to come to the place where you realize that sometimes you've got to doubt your eyes and your ears and trust the Lord. Is there any biblical warrant for that? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on what? Your own understanding. Sounds counterintuitive. Wait a minute, Lord, you gave me understanding. You want me to use it. Now you're saying don't lean on it? Well, there's a time when things look one way and perhaps they're another way and God says they're another way. We need to trust him, right? You see a lot of examples throughout the Bible for that. So Paul is in a tough spot. He has to defend his ministry here. He has uh, some physical pain, whatever it is, we don't know. And then the Lord tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. And so he gives Paul the grace to acknowledge his weakness and hear it, to be content with the thorn. I've been saying it for years and I believe it with all my heart. Probably the rarest commodity in our land is this thing called genuine contentment. How many people do you know who are genuinely content? Now, we just went through the Christmas season. How many people said, oh, man, I really wanted this. Oh, there's only two of these and one of those. Oh, batteries included. Man. What does it take to be content? Even the thrill stuff gets old after a couple weeks, right? Genuine contentment comes from the Lord. One scholar says, God's grace is not just the unmerited favor that saves us, but a force that also sustains us throughout our lives. God's grace provides spiritual strength. But the formula is a little different. He says there, verse 9, for power is perfected in weakness. Literally, is made fully present in weakness. People really see it when we are weak. Weak in the best sense of the word, i.e. dependent upon the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 3. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation coupled with it, he will also provide the way of escape. Cool. 
So when it's really getting tough and there's a lot of heat in the room and I've got to get out of this thing, I've got to look for the escape hatch. There's my way of escape. And slide down to the basement and get out of the building. Cool. Is that what it's saying? Oh, I didn't read the last part. I forgot. He will also provide the way of escape. Why? That you may be able to endure it. Sounds like I've got to stay in the room and face the heat. But somehow he's going to keep me cool. Think of those with Nebuchadnezzar, the ones who were in the fiery furnace. Somehow they stayed cool, didn't they? It's God working through them. So the, the power of Christ invades our lives in the midst of the trial, the tragedy, whatever it is we're facing. And he gives us the power to endure so we come out the other side more like Christ, more mature, with a greater sense of joy and purpose in our lives. I don't think it's a good thing to always run from suffering. Now, hear me. I'm not saying go look for it. Because pain, trial, suffering, testing has your address. It has your email, your snail mail, your text. It'll get to you. Don't worry. Don't go looking for it. But when it comes, and it will, and you may be going through it right now, you need to hear me clearly. God's grace is sufficient for what even you're going through right now. And I'm not belittling it. I don't even know what it is. It could be really, really, really tough. But God's grace is is stronger and broader and deeper, and it can handle it. Broader than the scope of my transgressions. Remember that old hymn from way back? And so what we have here then, folks, is a picture of a man who was fully submitted to Christ, who understood what God's grace was all about, and embraced it like a drowning man clinging to a life preserver. One scholar puts it like this, Power comes through seeing weakness as the very vehicle for manifesting the power of Christ. Paul's saying, if my weaknesses are the means of manifesting Christ's power, then by God's grace I will rejoice in my present sufferings to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's a godly attitude and the right perspective, I think. And so God's grace provides spiritual strength. Notice the purpose clause, verse 9, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So Paul realizes that rather than hindering his ministry, the thorn was God's gracious means of strengthening Paul for service. So Christian life is impossible apart from God's grace and the concomitant power that comes with it. Look at verse 10. This is the wrap-up thought. Therefore, he, he doesn't just say, I'm content with weaknesses. He says, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Key phrase, don't miss it, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, that's the math formula, then I am strong. So Paul not only endured his thorn, he actually rose above it. He wholeheartedly embraced God's will. And he realized that that thorn prevented, in Paul's life, self-reliance. And it promoted spirit reliance. Spiritual contentment. Godly contentment. In daily weakness. You see, that's spiritual strength. When you see somebody who's really going through it, and they have that rare commodity that I hardly see, which is true contentment, you know it's something supernatural. God's doing it. It's not a pep talk. It's not a New Year's resolution. It's not a feel-good thing. It's something God actually and literally works in the human heart, despite the challenges. And so he says, 
I'm well content with weakness for Christ's sake. And that's when the persecution comes, when we're serving him. And finally, for when I am weak, then I am strong. One scholar says, Paul learned that the whole of his life was the grace of God, including his weakness. See, grace then covers all that stuff we would call bad. It's not just the cool little gifts we get. It's all the stuff. Those are all God's gifts. His ills were not somehow outside the mainstream of God's grace, but were an integral part of it. All right, let's go to chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 through 11. He says, but we have this treasure. The treasure you'll see further up is the gospel in the context there. For we have this treasure, this gospel, in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Notice what he went through here. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, there's that same phrase again, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. God's grace provides spiritual strength. Now, years ago, during the uh, Tournament of Roses parade, there was a beautiful float which was going down. You know, if you've ever seen these, uh, there's roses and it's just colors. It's beautiful, right? So this one float was going down the street, people on either side watching all the floats. And all of a sudden it coughed and it sputtered and it died out and really stopped the whole parade. The float ran out of gas. Who was sponsoring that float? Standard Oil Company. <laughs> Who has millions and trillions of gallons of oil and gas and everything else. All those resources, but they were not making a veil of them. We've got all the riches and resources in the grace of God. It's limitless. What's available to you is limitless. Are we taking advantage of it? Are we leaning on God's grace? You see, we need a broader view of God's grace. As I say, it encompasses more than beautiful roses with sweet fragrance. It also includes, the grace of God includes thorns and bloody stems. So the question is, are we willing to demonstrate Christ's power to the world, even if it means personal suffering? You see, humility is more important to Christ than is our personal comfort. Our culture reverses that, doesn't it? Personal comfort is where the action is, the culture would tell us. Proverbs 3, 5, as I said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. You see, sometimes we're mistaken about what is best for us. And then God gets the bad rap when he doesn't wrap it with a bow and give it to us at 7 o'clock as we requested. If he gave it to us, we'd open it up and it might blow up in our face because we asked amiss, right? God knows and he loves us too much for that. Even the Apostle Paul here asked amiss, right? Christ didn't answer. He didn't take away the thorn. But God's wisdom is infinite, and he will set apart, he will sanctify our weakness so that we can grow in his grace. And that's a command, grow in the grace of God. And so I hope you can see that God's grace provides spiritual strength. More importantly, God's grace 
is sufficient for our every need. All the time, no matter where we're at, and no matter what circumstance we face. Now, this country faced the great test back in the 1800s. It was a war. Anybody know what that war was? I wasn't around then. I know I'm an older guy, but I wasn't around then. The what war? 1800s? Abe Lincoln is a hint. Civil War, right. Here is a letter from a Civil War soldier. He's anonymous. I don't have his name. But he wrote this. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked God for health that I might do greater things. I was given a infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for. But everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. In other words, what he's saying is, God's grace is sufficient for our every need, all the time, in any circumstance, in any place. Do you believe it? If so, say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're overwhelmed by your grace. We're overwhelmed with the way you, with tender loving care, provide for us, even when we don't ask. We're overwhelmed with how you are patient when we become impatient. We're overwhelmed with how you choose to manifest your grace through us, even when we're dragging our feet. You're awesome. And this is why we praise you, because you are awesome. And so we choose at this moment, Lord, to worship you in song and to lift up our hearts in praise. Receive it as a love offering from us. We pray it in the sterling, matchless name of Jesus. And Lord, all my brothers and sisters said, Amen. 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 Praise the Lord.